It's been one year since the three-member Merit Systems Protection Board has had a quorum after several years without one. A big challenge for the board was clearing a five-year backlog of appeals cases. Now it looks like the pace of that clearance is accelerating. For an update, Acting Chairman Kathy Harris, who joins me in studio. Ms. Harris, good to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me, Tom. And I don't want to only talk about the backlog, but that's the big topic of the board. But it looks like you are getting up into the triple digits per month clearing this. What's going on? What's the current level of the backlog and and the pace of clearing it? We cleared about 437 cases in the past two months. But that was what I call the sprint because we knew Tristan Levitt, our third member, was about to leave. And we wanted to get out as many cases that he had voted on as possible before his departure. So we redeployed some resources in order to accelerate the pace of getting those cases out. I don't expect that to continue, but we're really excited that we've cleared so many cases. And what are the numbers? You had a couple of thousand, I believe it was, when you came in. Yeah, when the quorum was restored, which was about two months before I got there in March 2022, we had about 3,800 cases pending before the board. And since that time, by the end of February, we decided 1,219 cases. About 1,150 of those were petitions for review. And then there are about 75 other kinds of headquarters cases like court remands, arbitration cases, compliance referrals, those kinds of things. And we've issued both precedential and non-precedential decisions, which are available on our website. That was my question. Are the precedential ones, do they take longer than the non-precedential ones? It depends on the case, but we try to front load decisions for cases we thought might be precedential because then non-precedential ones that would follow those cases would be able to be issued more efficiently, if that makes sense. So if you do a big one, a case that has a big holding, then you know maybe 25 cases follow it and we can just boom, 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 get those out. Yeah. How do you tell from initial, here's a file, it could be electronic, it, I guess there's still paper. How do you know whether it's going to be precedential until you read through the whole thing? This I rely on the geniuses in our Office of Appeals Council, our career staff, who look for these things. They look for emerging issues. They look to see, okay, what's an issue where parties are getting confused on? Or maybe the federal circuit has told us, yeah, you know, we don't like it this way, do it another way. And then we try to make a precedential decision to really help guide parties. Got it. So you don't break eggs. You already get a carton of pre-scrambled egg mix a step done for you. Yes, we're really lucky. The Office of Appeals Counsel is like what I would say is like our pool clerks like in an appellate court would have and they prepare drafts for us and do all the research and then we either like it or we don't like it. We may send it back to them for more work. We may rework it ourselves. It just totally depends. And you mentioned that you had put more resources on to clear the cases before. That was my punchline that Tristan Levitt is gone. You're back down to two people. But what do you mean by more resources? Because there's the board members that have to read it. There's the staff. What else have you got? 
So once the board members vote on cases, it goes to our clerk's office for issuance. And they do a tremendous amount of work to make our decisions look really beautiful and accurate. I'm more interested in the accurate than the beauty. But they, you know, make sure that by the time the case is issued, the law hasn't changed again, that everything is copacetic, that the right appeal rights are given to the parties, all these different things. And plus, it's a massive undertaking. Like, you know, any adjudicative body, they have to make sure things are logged correctly, that the files are dealt with properly. So it takes time and effort even after the votes are done. And by the way, you don't discuss them amongst yourselves as board members, right? Everybody reviews the cases from the material and the cases and what the staff has prepared but you vote independently and then see whether it adds up to three to nothing or two to one or one to two. Yeah, that's almost right. We don't talk to each other directly because of the prohibitions of the Sunshine Act and government. We can't speak with one another without um, certain... A formal meeting. A formal meeting, right. So, I mean, we can say hello or have lunch together. We just can't discuss cases or adjudication. But we have staff that can kind of go back and forth to talk to each other, sort of, you know, shuttle diplomacy to see if we can reach agreement, consensus on a particular issue or not. And so we do tend to know, especially with cases that maybe are more difficult, we'll get some guidance from the other members' offices, you know, hey, what do you think about this? We do some of that. So staff relays a note that says, could the good and honorable Mr. Limon, Mr. Levitt, tell me what they think of XYZ? Yeah, that's right. Without the British parliamentary phrases. Without that, yes. We're speaking with Kathy Harris. She is the acting chairman of the Merit Systems Protection Board. And I had asked you whether you prefer chairman or chairwoman, and you prefer chairman for a really good reason. It's in the statute. (laughs) So I figure I'll just go with what the law says. All right. And just final question about the precedential decisions. It's precedent, and that needs to get out to the world. Out of that 1,219 cases, some number of those will be precedential. Does the precedents get added up and somehow disseminated as new information? Yes. First of all, we have our precedential decisions and non-precedential decisions separated on our website. So you can pull down a menu to read all the precedential decisions. The other thing we do is we issue case reports on our precedential decisions and also on noteworthy Federal Circuit decisions, so folks can read those as well. Those are published on the website. Because the MSPB does do periodic reports, kind of summarizing trends and what people need to know about this whole vast area of prohibited personnel practices and basically how agency management should perform and act toward employees and vice versa. So do the precedential bodies get more than just posted separately, but somehow interpreted and a new volume is added to what we know about this whole topic? That's a really interesting question. So we have kind of two sides of the house at the board. We have our adjudicative side where we speak to federal agencies and appellants through our decisions. You know, this is how we think the merit principles should be applied, or this is where you went wrong agency in trying to terminate this person. We also have a side of the house that's our studies department, for for lack of a better word. It's our Office of Policy and Evaluation. 
and by statute were required to issue studies regarding the merit system principles and the prohibited personnel practices and other areas of interest to the merit system. So, for example, we just issued a report this week on perceptions of prohibited personnel practices, and it's an update for 2023. This is a study that's been done over the years many times, and we periodically update it for the public. That's published on our website as well. So that's an update to an earlier volume. Yes. And who should read that, by the way? Everybody should read that. I mean, if you're interested in merit systems, if you're a federal employee, if you're a federal agency manager, an executive, if you're an HR professional, chief human capital officers, all these types of folks would find, I think, the conclusions very interesting. For example, you know, we take data from surveys that are done across federal government. And what we found in this report is the most perceived prohibited personnel practice, that is really a tongue twister, four Ps. You did well. Yeah, thank you. Was an official trying to define the scope or manner of a recruitment action for the purposes of improving the chances of a particular person's right to compete for employment. So meaning pre-selection. Right. And that's the number one perceived prohibited personnel practice. is sort of cooking the books in favor of a particular individual. Yeah. So if agencies want to decrease that perception among their workforce, what can they do, right? How can they make things better? Because we don't want people to think that there's pre-selection. We don't want there to be pre-selection. We want merit systems to be upheld. And, you know, it may be that a person who uh, an agency manager thinks is the best for the job winds up being the best for the job, right? So that can happen, and that's not illegal. But you don't want people to think that the system is... Gamed. Is gamed, yes. Right, because OPM does issue about 124 flexibilities for hiring, and basically you're telling agencies, if you're going to use one of those, use it, justify it, just don't be the lazy way, which happens to also be a prohibited personnel practice. That's right. We want things to be done fairly. We are up against the clock for a commercial break. Can you stick with me for one more segment? Of course I can. And the way you mentioned disseminating those presidential decisions, it strikes me that you're kind of like a model of the Supreme Court, only instead of the Constitution, you've got Title V. Well, it's probably, Tom, the first and only time we'll be compared to the Supreme Court. So thank you. That's very, very kind. We're adjudicators. You know, we're the appellate body of an administrative agency. But after us, that's not the end. In case, unlike at the Supreme Court, you know, that's it. Good point. Folks can appeal to a court of appeals, typically the federal circuit, sometimes like in whistleblower cases or if it's a discrimination case, they can go to other courts as well. Got it. And we should talk about the fact that finally, after years and years, there was a quorum of three members. And now Tristan Levitt's term was up. He's gone a couple of weeks now, a few days now. And what does that mean functionally for the board? And how else should we think about this? Because I don't think there's a nominee yet, right? Right. There's no nominee yet. We're waiting. First, I just want to say I'm really going to miss Tristan Levitt. He was a really great asset to the board. He came with a lot of experience in whistleblower law. He also held down the fort during the lack of quorum. And Mr. Levitt had a number of jobs there, right, before becoming a member. Yes. He was, in fact, general counsel, and then he was the acting agency head during the lack of quorum. 
he really did a great job, and we're really thankful to him for everything he did. So we're going to miss him. But the good news, that's the sad news. The good news is that we still have a quorum. You need two board members for the minimum amount of quorum. We have that, myself and Raymond Lamone. So we can still do everything we did when we had three members. We can vote on cases. We can issue reports. We can do everything that a quorum allows. So in Ray's term goes through 2025. I think he can hold over another year if mm-hmm. there's a no nominee. And I'm here through 2028. And again, I could hold on another year if necessary. So we're hopeful we'll get a third board member as soon as possible. I think it's better for the board to have a full complement, not just because it's better for us to have more views, but that's more hands to do the work. Sure. And is there a bipartisan nature to the MSPB, like so many other appointed commissions and boards and adjudicators, FCC, et cetera? Do there have to be two of one party and one of the other? There has to be at least one of one of the other party. And he was the other party. But just tell me there's no real political bias that comes into these types of decisions on MSPB Title V matters. Not that I've seen. We agreed on almost everything. So, you know, the law is the law as far as I'm concerned. And reasonable lines can differ on how it's interpreted, but none of us are looking at it from a political perspective. My guest is Kathy Harris, acting chairman of the Merit Systems Protection Board. And getting back to clearing that backlog, especially for the precedential cases, does it come into your mind that there are actual individuals out there, several per case, the agency people and the employee, who have been waiting maybe a decade for what your stamp of approval or disapproval is? I know very well because I spent two decades representing federal employees and agencies before the MSPB. Some of my former clients are those who were waiting for decisions, some for six years, seven years. And it's devastating for them to not have finality. People aren't always going to have the decision that they want, right? It's not always going to be the way they want it to go. But I feel very strongly they deserve a decision, And so that's why I'm pushing, I'm doing everything I can to get these decisions out. People's lives are ruined by not having a decision, not knowing what's going to happen. And I I understand it very well. Every day, that's what I think about. People are waiting. We got to get this out. On the other hand, we want to make sure we make the correct decision. We want to do the very best we can. So we can't rush through them and just, you know, flip a coin and say, okay, this is going to go that way. We want to do it right. And people have been waiting for a long time. So I want to make sure we make the right decision for them. So they deserve a decision, but they deserve a good decision. And a final question, and I think I know the answer, but you have till 2028, possibly 29. Do you like the work? Oh, I love it. I feel so lucky. You know, I've been a litigator, a trial lawyer, appellate lawyer for two decades, but I was an advocate, right? So this is my first time making decisions. And what I keep saying to people is when I was a a litigator, you know, you would meet the client, you'd get to know them, understand their story, and then you'd litigate their case and basically live with them and the other side for years, right? It just went on and on and on. And it was so frustrating to not get finality and relief or at least a decision for these folks. It just took so long. And now 
you know, I get to read the file and make a decision. And I just feel so honored. Uh, it's just so wonderful to be able to be on this side. And I'm, I'm really happy. And that's good to hear because you did come through something known as Senate confirmation, <laughs> yes, which I did. is a form of modern day torture, you might say, between the paperwork, the legalities, the waiting and some of the stupid questions you get in hearings. That's mine saying that, not you saying that. So it sounds like you would advise people that are waiting on a dream job Give it what it takes, even if it involves Senate confirmation. It's worth it when you come through that tunnel. First of all, I just want to say I think that the rigor of Senate confirmation is important. We want to make sure that good people get into these jobs. We want to make sure that anybody who has such an important job is vetted properly. So I didn't mind it. It was part of the process. It took a long time. That's part of the process, too. I think it's totally worth it. And I would encourage any nominee who's in that pipeline, hang in there. It gets better on the other side. And lightning round, are you working from home or from the office? I'm mostly in the office. I'm in the office four days a week. Sometimes I come in on Fridays, too, just because I miss it. And um, the staff? The staff is there for the most part at least two days a week. Some come in every day. Some are a little bit less. Telework hasn't hampered operations at all. Well, I think like every agency, we had to make do during the pandemic. I wasn't there. So, you know, we did what we could. I'm seeing a real value in hybrid. You know, sometime in the office is good. Sometime telework is good. And we're trying to figure out, you know, what's the right balance. And as I say, mission first, people always. So you need your people to accomplish your mission and you need to keep your mission foremost in your mind. Kathy Harris is acting chairman of the Merit Systems Protection Board. By the way, how does acting come off? So I still have to go through another round of confirmation for the chairman position. So since the new year, I got renominated by the president, and then now I have to go through committee. And once I'm through committee, it's back to the floor to wait for a vote. All right. So you've been through that merry-go-round once already. You know, it's not as hard the second time around. All right. Again, Kathy Harris is acting chairman of the Merit Systems Protection Board. Great having you in. Thank you so much, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. 
Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners, And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do 
other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have You mentioned Horace Mann. I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I I have a takeaway in in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, I the way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. 
and um, mm-hmm. being born in rural southwest uh, mm-hmm. Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can I can tell you that your your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.